just a few moments, I'm going to read you some verses from the prophet Isaiah. As we gather to worship this morning, I don't really know what's going on inside. You might come here this morning and there's a lot of excitement going on in your life. You might be really excited inside and glad to be here. You might be here this morning and are feeling rather nervous. There might be things going on in your life that no one else knows about. You might be struggling with your job or your family. Or you might be in a season of life in which the Lord is, feels as though he is extra close to you and that things are just, it's a sweet time of life. You might be here because, I don't know, you might be angry because your team lost last night. Mine did. Every single one of us, no matter where we are in our lives today, every single one of us are looking for something from the world that the world can't provide. And when we gather for worship, we are here to celebrate and to learn that our hope is found outside of ourselves, that hope is found in God. Hear this. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known the deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter 4 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn there. Notice that the words are in the bulletin. There's just a slight misprint, and it's my fault. On the front page where the verses start, it is John 4, not John 3, 1 through 21. It is what you have there is actually John 4, so you can follow along there as you'd like. We're going to look at this whole section, verses 1 through 42. However, I'm just going to read verses 13 and 14 and 15. But the verses are in the bulletin so that you can follow along because I'm going to refer to a lot of verses that I'm not going to read to you today, all right? So... As we read this this morning, I want you to remember that when John writes this gospel account, he tells us why he has written it. If you look at the end of his account in chapter 20, you'll find that John says, there are a lot of other things that Jesus said and he did, but I have written to you about these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So this year, as John Paul said, we're thinking about what his life with Jesus look like, taken right from John 20, verse 31. All right? Make sense? Sound familiar? All right. Well, let's, let's dive in. John 4, I'm going to read verses 13, 14, and 15. Then I'm going to pray. Listen to this. What I'm going to read to you is truth. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, 
We gather here as beginners. There's not one of us who is an expert in life with you. We are all, we are all beginners before you. So we ask, Lord, that today in particular, you would remind each one of us, you would teach each one of us that our depths hold no secrets to you. That you know us inside and out. And Lord, in knowing that and being convinced of that more and more, would you cause us to surrender our lives afresh and to find hope and joy in the reality that you know us and that we belong to you. I pray this, Father. I pray this through the blood of your Son. I pray this, Holy Spirit, depending on you to do what none of us can do for ourselves that you might get all glory, now and forever. Amen. Have you ever noticed that for whatever reason, it seems natural for us to live our lives and avoid messiness and brokenness? Have you ever noticed this? It just seems natural for us to want to avoid the messiness of life and the brokenness of life. I can think back and remember times when friends of mine were injured while we were playing sports, and I didn't even want to look, you know? I remember when I was young and my dad uh, first took my brother and me to the nursing home to see my great-grandmother, who is very near death. I remember him telling me in very clear ways, Dave, you're going into a place in which you're going to hear people screaming, maybe. There are going to be people groaning. There are going to be people who are incredibly uncomfortable, and he told me that to prepare me. I remember going into the nursing home for the first time and thinking to myself, I want to see, I want to see Meemaw, but I kind of want to get out of here. You ever had those experiences? Even beyond that, we all know what it's like to see the shatteredness in people's lives. We all know what it's like to see the shatteredness in our friends' lives and the brokenness of our friends' lives or our family. You know what it's like when there's fractions in your family and there's brokenness in your family, things that you never expected before? You know what it's like to experience those in your coworkers? Probably a lot of times, in a lot of ways, you've observed brokenness. And it just seems easy to avoid. And let me say this, it is absolutely true that there are some times when it is perfectly appropriate and even wise to separate yourself from things. That is true. I mean, there's a sense in which me seeing my friend who messed up his, who was injured, it was good for me to back away, right? I'm not a doctor. There was nothing I could do. So there's some times in life in which it is good to step away and distance yourself. But notwithstanding that, don't we all just feel this natural tendency to, I don't know, distance ourselves from brokenness and messiness of people? And not only are we all probably guilty of that at one time or another or multiple times, 
but we probably have been on the receiving end too. We probably have been on the receiving end of other people avoiding us when they should have entered in or come to us. Well, the whole point of this chapter and the point of Jesus' interaction here with this woman at the well, the whole point, the point of this chapter is that John is showing us how Jesus approaches broken people. Broken people that feel as though they are outcasts, that have a sense that they're on the social fringe of society. This is how Jesus approaches people that are broken, whose lives are shattered, who may be addicts, who are marginalized, who feel as though they don't belong. That's the whole point of this. So let's dive in together. Look at the first seven verses, if you will. This is where it's showing us that Jesus intentionally pursues us. You read in the first couple of verses that Jesus is with his friends, his disciples in Judea, and they end up leaving Judea and going into Samaria. And when they arrive in Samaria, his disciples leave to go back. So they go to town. And it's there that Jesus meets this woman. He goes to the well and he has this encounter with a woman. Verse 6 tells us that it's about noon. So here they are at high noon, Jesus and this woman. And actually the fact that John records the reality that it was about noon tells us something very important. You see, most people came to gather water either early in the morning or late in the afternoon. But this woman comes at noon. She is obviously trying to avoid people. She is obviously trying to go outside of the norm because it's not usual. It's not usual for people to collect water at this time of day. And it's not even common for a Jewish man to talk with a Jewish, excuse me, to a woman. She wasn't Jewish. Sorry, I messed that up already. That wasn't even common either. What we're reading in the first few verses of this chapter is absolutely radical. If you remember when we were studying Ephesians together, you might remember that there was this prayer of, uh, of Jewish men. And every day their prayer went something like this. Lord, thank you that I am not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a slave. And thank you that I'm not a woman. So for this Jewish man, Jesus, to be interacting with a woman, absolutely radical. Remember, women's testimony wasn't allowed in court in the first century. What you want to trace that out is some of the amazing reasons why we believe the Bible is absolutely true. Because who in the world would rise from the dead and show up to a bunch of women, first of all? No one would do that if they're trying to lie. Because their testimony was never allowed in court. God could care less about that. Here he is interacting with this woman, absolutely radical. And even more than that, she was a Samaritan, which to Jews, huh, wow, Jews hated Samaritans. They considered them half-breeds. They saw them as racially inferior. They weren't even religiously the same. Jewish people hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews, and here's Jesus at the well with a woman 
and he's talking to her. And she's even a Samaritan. This is absolutely intentional. And to make it even clearer, look at verse 4. It says that Jesus had to go this way. Did you notice that? Listen to this. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Do you hear that? Jesus had to. He had to go this way. And just for the record, there weren't any outlet malls that Jesus could stop at all the way. It wasn't as though there was amazing scenic overlooks that he was, that he was wanted to see on his way to another place. No, he had to go to this place. It is 100% intentional that Jesus went to this town because he wanted to meet with this woman, this person, so that we would have this story. From the start, Jesus is absolutely intentional about pursuing people that are broken. And if you're sitting this morning wondering, well, how do I know if Jesus is pursuing me? How do I know if he's being intentional with me? Well, sometimes there's just an unbelievable moment that you just know. And it may be loud and it may be whatever. It may be something you never expected. Sometimes you know that God is pursuing you, Jesus is pursuing you, the Spirit is at work in your life because there's just this soft, gentle, gentle voice in which you're being reminded of things that are true and challenged on things that you're thinking about inside of your own heart. But how you really know when you are being pursued and when God is being intentional with you is when you are beginning to feel your own emptiness. And you're beginning to understand more and more of your own self-dependence. And you're realizing that all this self-dependence is really, really empty. And you're wanting to get outside of yourself because you know that there's something more. That's how you always know that God is intentionally pursuing you. Because you want to get outside of yourself. And you realize in new ways how much our default mode is to look to self. Jesus is being absolutely intentional here. And there's something else. Jesus knows that we are thirsty. Jesus begins by talking with this woman and says to her, give me something to drink. Give me something to drink. Now, there are so many points that I want to pause in this chapter and I just can't, but I can't resist this one. Try to take this in. He approaches this woman. It's absolutely radical. And he puts himself in a position of need. Jesus is talking with this woman. He says, can you give me something to drink? He's putting himself in a position of need. Does your view of Jesus ever, does he ever do that? Or is he always this strong guy that's always just hammering people and coming down on top of them? Do you have this view of Jesus in which he comes to people? Do you have a view of Jesus in which he comes to you, showing you his own need? Does your view of Jesus even allow that? And you see that flips over real quickly, right? Do we ever put ourselves in a position of need? 
Do we ever put ourselves in a position of need with other people? To go even more, do you need people? Or do you live life as if you don't need anyone and don't need community? Here's Jesus putting himself in a position of need. And therefore, it's not surprising that she's surprised. Jesus, why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me, verse 9? What in the world do Jewish men have to do with a woman, a Samaritan? Jesus said to her in verses 10 and following, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who I was that was talking with you, if you knew what I was offering and what I can give, you would have given me water. If you knew that I have come from God and if you knew that I could give living water, you would have absolutely given me water. And she says to him, but Jesus, you've got no bucket and the well is awfully deep. How in the world can you give me anything? Is what she's saying. She doesn't understand what he's talking about. Jesus says to her, well, the water from this well yeah, you'll thirst again. But the water that I can give you, the water that I give, if you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. That's what we read in verse 13 and 14. And you know what she says? I want this water. Verse 15. I want this water. You see, the idea of thirst and being thirsty is the way that God gets at the reality that we all are looking for more. We are all looking for more. Jesus knows that this woman is looking for more. He knows that all of us here this morning are looking for more. Whether it's the reality that we think or have heard that six Super Bowls aren't enough, whether it's working 80 hours a week, we are all looking for more. Whether it's we want a bigger title, whether it's we want more resources. We all are looking for more. We all desire ultimate love and purpose and meaning. We all are looking for ultimate acceptance and satisfaction. We are all looking for these ultimate things like belonging. Even if you are here this morning and exploring what does it mean to be a Christian? You're looking for more. There might even be this sense of, this haunting sense that there may be something more. Jesus knows that every single one of us are thirsty. And then look what Jesus does in 16 through 26. Jesus not only knows that we're all thirsty and we're all looking for more, we're all looking for something ultimate, but he knows that there are layers to our lives. He knows there are layers to our lives. This is where the encounter with Jesus ramps up. And let's not miss the obvious here. As he's interacting with this woman, she doesn't get it. She isn't tracking. And Jesus knows it. He knows that she's not understanding what he's talking about. So he says to her in verse 16 through 18, okay, go get your husband. Might sound like it comes from left field, right? She says to him, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, you're right. You've had five. 
And the guy that you're living with right now, he's not your husband. And make no mistake about this. When you read back through it, make no mistake. Jesus is not changing the subject here. Nor is he moving in to have a lecture about what marriage should be and what, how you should properly divorce. That's not what he's talking about at all. He knows how poorly women are treated. He knows how women are objectified, especially in the first century. He is pressing her. He's talking to her. He wants her to talk about. He wants to talk about with her, her relationships. He wants to talk about the way in which she approaches her life and the way in which she approaches her relationships. And maybe even to get more pointed, the way she thinks about sex and the way she thinks about relationships themselves. Jesus is saying to her, do you realize that relationships have been running your life? She's been trying to find hope. She's been trying to find acceptance. She's been trying to find security. She's been trying to find meaning in all of these things, and they haven't worked. And she still feels empty and still feels like she is an outcast. You see, there's a difference when Jesus engages us, and particularly when he engages this woman. There's a difference between saying to someone, stop sinning. There's a difference between that and saying, do you see the sin underneath your sin? Do you see what's driving those desires? Are you willing to think about what's hijacked your life? That's what he's saying to her. Are you willing to think about how you've lived and why you've lived that way? And then he says, let me show you what living water is. You see, living water is what you have been trying to find. It's what you've been looking for in all of your relationships, in sex. And we can expand that to anything else, our careers, our family, our names, our bank accounts. We are all trying to find these ultimate things, and it never delivers through these other avenues. Jesus knows that there are multiple layers to our lives, and he's interested in getting at the stuff underneath the stuff. He's interested in getting at the thirst that's underneath our thirst. He's digging up what's underneath everything that we want to hide and run away from, everything that brings us shame things that bring you shame in your life. Jesus wants to get underneath that. He wants to get underneath the facade that we put up, that everything's okay, that my life is great. And you know what? She picks up on this. She realizes what he's doing, and now he's going deep, because she immediately says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she goes on to talk about her family. It's fascinating, isn't it? She tries to redirect and all of a sudden, she gets, uh, she gets all religious on Jesus. Oh, Jesus, oh, oh, I see that you're a prophet. I see that you're a religious man. Well, my daddy and my granddaddy, they used to worship over here. We used to worship on this mountain and with these people. There should be a book written about what people say whenever they find out that you're a pastor. I mean, I, I read this story, I've read it over and over and over and over, and I, and I love this moment in the story because I can relate to it so well. Maybe someday I'll write a book, what people say when they find out that I'm a pastor. I'll give you an example. 
Because exactly what this woman does and when she tries to redirect. When we lived in the mountains, our driveway, you've heard me say this before, was really, really steep. Really steep. And you basically needed a four-wheel drive most of the year to get up to our house. There was this big curve coming around um, the, uh, the part of our property that led up to our house. And one day, there was this older couple. They had been at the casino in Cherokee for a while. And they weren't from North Carolina, but they were looking to buy property. So they came up our driveway, and if you know anything about cars, they were in a PT Cruiser, okay? If you know nothing about cars, this is all you need to know about this particular brand of car. It's about, you know, eight inches off the ground, all right? So they're driving up this, dri- this gravel driveway, come around this big curve, and they get stuck. And then they try to fix things, and it only makes it worse. So I realize that someone is just kicking rocks and digging trenches in my driveway, so I go out to help them, and... I, base, I don't have to carry both of them to the house, but um, let's just say they weren't very mobile. I get into the house, get them some water, sit down, we start talking to them as a family, and uh, apparently the wife lost some very expensive piece of jewelry on our driveway. So it wasn't just that they got stuck, is that she lost this piece of jewelry. And virtually every other word out of the guy's mouth was, you know, damn this, hell that, just on and on and on and on. And then I think he realized that he was kind of dominating the conversation and saying things, you know, that may not be appropriate for little children that were there right in front of him in my house, my children, if I need to make it more clear. And he says, well, what do you do? Oh, boy, here it comes. <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. Oh, God has been so good to me. Uh, I, I own a Bible. That was the second thing out of his mouth. I, I, I own a Bible. I mean, just like that. People find out what you do, whoosh, they're going to redirect everything. Forget about the last 20 minutes of him just railing and me skirting my kids out of the room, you know. And you either get those kinds of stories And those kinds of experiences, or you get the kinds of experiences in which people just immediately start, like, verbalizing their shame. Well, it's been so long since I've been to church. You know? Maybe you've been in some of these situations. Because I know, no matter what profession you're in, people make assumptions about your life. I'm not alone in that. So whether you're here in whatever profession you have, people make assumptions about you too. And they act a certain way when they figure out who you are or what's you do with your life, right? Here's Jesus offering this woman, and she redirects him as if to say, oh, I'm real religious. My granddaddy was a pastor. We used to worship over there on that mountain. And Jesus brings her back and says, look, you don't understand. The reason why your forefathers worshiped over there is because the time is coming and now is in which everyone is going to worship God in spirit and in truth. So whether you want to talk about worship or whether you want to talk about living water, I am he. I am the object of worship and I am living water. I'm it. I am everything. So whether your daddy was over there or not, you're here and I'm here. And I'm the one that has everything that you need.
So the woman hears that from him, right? Sir, give me this water. Sir, give this to me. Well, she gets it. It clicked. Jesus not only knows how layered our lives are, but he loves us more and knows us more thoroughly than anyone else. The woman heard that from Jesus, and her life was absolutely changed. Someone like her, someone who was an outcast, someone who was broken, someone whose life was shattered, someone who was trying to find meaning and purpose through sex and relationships, and we can add to that work and family and title and money. And she knew it didn't get her anywhere. She was having to make up stuff on the fly about how religious she was. She knew she was bankrupt deep, deep down. And she realized she was in connection with the one who was saying, if you really want to worship, I'm here. If you really want living water to satisfy all that emptiness, I've got it. And she goes back to town and she tells everyone in town, I found the Messiah. If you look at verse 39 and following, it tells you that she returned to town and this was her declaration, just in case you thought I was reading too much into this. Her declaration was this in town. Let me tell you about a man who told me about everything I've ever done. Do you get how deep that is? She knew that she had come in contact with someone who knew the depths of her being. She knew that he was there to meet her, to challenge her, to expose everything about her because he loved her and he cared for her. He knew her better than she knew herself. And she couldn't, she couldn't redirect the conversation and get away. She couldn't do anything except say, I have found the Messiah and he knows me more than anyone else, and he has accepted me more than any other man I've ever been with, anything else I've ever done. And people heard that in the community, and they believed. And they even return, and they spend two more days with Jesus. And the text ends in verse 41 and 42 by telling you that those townspeople stayed with Jesus for two more days, and they believed not only because of her testimony, they believed because they sat down with Jesus. And they learned about their lives and more about what he was doing as well. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Now the last thing here is I want you to visualize this whole picture. See if I can put all these 42 verses together. See if you can visualize this in your mind because I read this this week and I just kept reading through it and I realized this is amazing how it fits together visually. So this is the best I got. I'm gonna to try to tell this to you, but see if you can picture it in your mind. Jesus and his disciples come to Samaria. Got it so far? They come to Samaria and the disciples go to town. Jesus goes to the well. He meets the woman at the well. Her life is changed. She goes back to town. Do you know where the disciples come next? As she goes back to town, the disciples come back to Jesus. And in the section that we hadn't talked about yet, you know what Jesus tells them? Hey, live your life on mission. 
Live your life on mission. Look up. He says, look up. Look in verse 35. Look up and see that the harvest fields are white. As far as I know, they've never had cotton in the Middle East. When he says, look up, what do the disciples see? The woman is coming back from the town with the townspeople. Do you see that? Can you picture that in your mind? Jesus is saying, live your life on mission. Look up. And what do they see? They see people. They see people coming to Jesus and coming to them. Do you see what Jesus is telling us that we are supposed to be doing with our lives? He is saying, look at the people that are coming towards you all the time. And to press this even further, there are people that aren't like you racially and ethnically. These are Samaritans. These are people that the disciples would naturally be raised to hate. They weren't like them racially. They weren't like them ethnically. They weren't like them religiously. And Jesus says, do you see? He is challenging all of his disciples to live lives in which they are connecting with people. Connecting with people in this instance anyway who aren't like them at all. People that are racially diverse people that are religiously diverse. And Jesus is not saying, agree with everything that they think. He's saying, do you love them? Are you willing to receive them? Are you willing to engage? Are you willing to build relationships? Jesus is challenging all of us to think about how do we relate to people that aren't like us? How do we relate to people that have a different religion than we do? How do we relate to people that aren't culturally like us? Are we demanding that they just become like us? Are we wanting to enter in and listen and learn and love people that we might disagree with deeply? But by God's grace, we can love and learn and share about this amazing news of who Jesus is. And oh, by the way, this is no moralism. This is not for you to take out of here today and say, well, this is the big application. I've got to go love people who aren't like me. Then to this is not, well, I need to leave this place and find people that aren't like me religiously or, or ethnically and, and, and dive in. I want you to realize the reason why we would ever do that is because that's exactly what Jesus has done for you, for me. He came to this earth to die for his enemies. And he has loved us by shedding his own blood. He has loved us by intentionally pursuing us and knowing everything about us and not running away, but saying, if you really want to worship and find purpose and meaning and hope, I'm it. If you really want to have meaning in your life, realize that it won't come from your job, it won't come from your bank account, it won't even come from sex and relationships comes from me, from Jesus. And friends, that is what brings us right to the table.
Remember that as we partake together, and you come forward and take the bread and the cup on either side of the table, and then go back to your chairs. And if you would, please hold the elements, and we will take together at the end. Um, if you would, move around the stuff that may be under your chair so that people don't trip as they're trying to get out. Remember that if you have any allergies at all, that this is our allergen-free bread. It's at every station, so feel free to take this. Uh, if you're not interested in tearing off the common loaf, it's flu season, people are sick, right? And you want to take from that bread? Totally understand. No problem. One is not holier than the other, okay? We're coming to partake of this meal. This is the meal in which we get to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that means today, as you sit here, if you know that Jesus knows everything about you and you have entrusted all that you can of what you know of yourself to him, meaning you have said, I believe Jesus, I believe you that you died for me and you belong to Jesus and his body, the church, this meal is for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet given your faith to Christ, then we would ask that you not partake, that you not take the bread and the cup, because there's no way that eating the bread and drinking the cup are going to get you to heaven. What they do is they represent who will. And if you have not given your life to Christ, we don't want you to do something that would be hypocritical by taking these elements. What we want you to do is to think about the full and free offer about a man who knows everything about your life. And he died for you. And he rose from the dead so that you can have forgiveness and life everlasting. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. The new life that Jesus has given you is just a down payment of the new life and the new world that we will have together. And we will celebrate this meal again. We will celebrate this meal one day with Jesus. And it will be amazing. And we will realize in brand new ways that we are fully known and fully loved. And we will be so full of joy that it will last forever. Let's pray together. Oh Lord in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word and for bringing us to the table to taste and see that you're good. Would you comfort our hearts? Would you enliven our lives with your power, the gospel? Would you help us, Father, to serve you because of what you have done? Would you help us to see others the way that you see us? That we might live new lives of thankfulness and joy. For your glory, amen.